Um, well, happy April. Happy April. It's I can't really believe that it's already April, and it is April 1st, so we are incredibly timely in our recording this month. Yeah, the second quarter of the year. No April Fool's jokes, though. No, none, because they're no. overrated and really silly. Absolutely. But the good news is the cherry blossoms are out here in Washington, D.C., and they're beautiful. And that's the sign that the weather is getting warmer. So it's it's almost time to hit the beach almost. or the pool. Oh, well, I wouldn't tell you that I went to the beach this weekend then. Well, for, for us East Coasters and for those <laughs> of us in the middle of the country who do not live in the warm climes of California weather. California. No, you're absolutely correct, though. I mean, it is with the warmer weather and the, the flowers coming out. I mean, it's time to start thinking about summer activities. It's right around the corner. And absolutely. What better thing to think about than, than aquatics and pools and pool safety and all of the trappings that go along with it? Sure. And so, you know, our listeners may not know that the pool is the second most popular recreational amenity for clubs right behind um, golf courses. So uh, pulling this data from the 2018 Finance and Operations Report, um, which is kind of timely because we are actually in data collection for the survey uh, through the 18th of this month. So make sure to get your data. I'm sorry, in. I said 18th. No, no, 19th through 19th. the 19th of April. Sorry, I, I spoke oh, so fast. Jeez, get your data in. 19th. So, and the and the good news about that is that um, everyone who participates in the survey uh, receives a full report um, upon completion. So there's some great stats about um, pools and amenities. Um, but also all the full finance and operations information. So all the line by line revenue, um, you can dive into the swimming pool section is pretty deep, so you can dive into that revenue. Um, no pun intended. Full time, no total, total <laughs> pun intended. So pools, uh, outdoor pools are found um, at about 73.9% of clubs. Indoor pools, 6.1%. So those are dealing with the not just the Memorial Day to Labor Day season for a lot of our clubs, but, but year-round year uh, operation of a pool. And then we don't want to forget our beach club friends. Uh, that's about 7% of clubs have beach beaches with swimming and, and all that kind of thing. And uh, as many of you know, our chairman is at Beach Point Club in the lovely Mamarone, uh, New York, one of the most beautiful beaches uh, that you can visit. And then our yacht and sailing clubs, yes, uh, which are right there on the water. So that's seven and a half percent of clubs um, today. So, with swimming pools being the primary activity center for a lot of clubs, right behind golf courses, um, you know, pool safety is one of those areas that we have to talk about. Absolutely, and it has to be part of the risk management plan for any facility. Um, so we're very excited to have an industry expert uh, join us for the call uh, today, and that's uh, C.W. Cook and CMCCE. He's the general manager and COO of Sawgrass Country Club in Pondo Future Beach, Florida, and he earned his master club manager MCM designation in 2017. Part of that process included the creation of the MCM monograph, the Aquatic Risk Management and Best Practices for Clubs, 
So if you're not familiar with the MCM, it is the designation which recognizes the importance of the significant long-lasting contributions made by club management professionals to their clubs, their professions, and their communities. So experienced club managers make a significant written contribution to the industry through the research and develop of an MCM monograph. To date, only 22 CMA members have achieved this designation. It's pretty impressive, and it's almost... I won't say it's the equivalent to writing a dissertation for your PhD, but for our industry, it's very similar. Um, The MCM monograph requires a lot of research and writing. um, And those, the written monographs that you can find on our website are great sources of information. um, And we definitely are trying to bring them out and highlight them and highlight the work that our MCMs have done and the contributions that they have made Uh, through this research and work uh, to the industry at large. Yes, and this is not the first MCM that we've had on our podcast. We were fortunate enough to have Mac Niven, MCMCCE, with us last year to talk about governance. Um, And Mac also received his uh, MCM back in 2017. And we look forward to featuring some additional MCMs that I've lined up um, with us throughout the year. So I think it's going to be exciting to tap into all of the knowledge um, that each of these folks brings to our industry. Absolutely. Well, without further ado, we're pleased to welcome C.W. Cook. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Um, Let's start by talking about your monograph, the topic Aquatic Risk Management and Best Practices for Clubs. Tell us what inspired you to pick this topic. Well, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, I uh, went through a very tragic, um, you know, incident at a club previously, almost almost 10 years ago uh, now, and that we had a, a six-year-old old boy who was a guest of a member who uh, unfortunately drowned in one of, you know, we had three pools at this, uh, this club, and unfortunately uh, drowned in one of our pools that day, and so that was... You know, the worst, you know, time of my life, darkest hour, you name it, uh, all, all together. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, you're doing all the things that you can to heal your club, to, um, you know, to, to be able to move forward and things of that nature. But, and, and we were able to do that, heal our club, heal our community, all those, all those kind of things. Uh, the one thing that I really struggled with personally was, uh, you know, I just felt responsible, you know, for this, uh, this incident. And, you know, I started my club career actually in the Air Force. Uh, and so I don't know if it was that military agreement or, or what, but, you know, it basically felt like to me, uh, you know, it doesn't matter the reason that this happened. Uh, it's my club. It's my watch. Ultimately, that means this was my fault. And so I struggled with that really hard. And ultimately... What I, what I chose to do, I made a really hard decision, but I felt like that the only way I was ever going to really, um, you know, get over this was to sort of thrust myself into it uh, so that I could come face-to-face with it and confront it. And so um, I, had, I made a really hard decision to step away from operations. I stepped away from, uh, dropped, uh, you know, resigned as uh, the GM of my property at that point in time. And I took an opportunity to go to work as a risk consultant for a company that did risk management for mostly YMCA's, um, 
Jewish community centers and camps uh, across the country. And so uh, once I, you know, got trained up in that area, they gave me a chance to work at this on a very, very large scale. So for two years, uh, you know, I did nothing but, you know, get on a plane every week and, you know, fly wherever they needed me to go. And uh, so in the course of, you know, that two years, I flew 300 times, you know, wow. and, uh, you know, really went coast to coast, you know, no matter what I was doing. And unfortunately, given the scale that I was working at, uh, because this, this company worked with 70% of the YMCA for the whole wow. country. And so the scale that I was working at, unfortunately, I got, I experienced uh, being a part of 60 uh, approximately uh, drownings during that wow. time frame. And so... When ultimately, I you know, uh, you know, I felt like two years down the road, uh, you know, I felt like I'd really accomplished what I what I started out for was to learn as much as I could about this, and uh, you know, there was an opportunity for me to actually come back to my previous club that the board had called and asked me if I'd be interested in coming back and talked through the family and decided, yeah, it's the right time to do it. So we came. So I came back uh, to that club, but a different person, you know. And so I, you know, I had a skill set now that I never really wanted to have. <laughs> and um, you know, at that point, I was, you know, I, I was ready to go ahead and, and get started with the MCM process because I'd already completed all the requirements outside of, you know, really applying to candidacy. And I said, hey, you know. This program is about leaving something that can be a lasting contribution to the club industry. I don't know a, a better way for me to be involved than that. So a little bit of a long answer to, uh, to that question, but that's sort of what uh, prompted me to sort of use that platform of the MCM uh, for this project. Well, thank you for sharing the passion. I think that, you know, it, it's, it's definitely evident in reading through the MCM that the, the monograph itself, that, that that passion comes through. So, you know, for for clubs, you know, pools are the second biggest amenity um, outside of golf. And so our, we pulled up the stat earlier, just about 74% of clubs have an outdoor pool, about 6% have an indoor pool, and then we certainly have our beach clubs and our yacht and sailing clubs who are, you know, conveniently located to water. So what what would you advice would you give to other club management professionals, especially those who haven't really considered how impactful this could be to their facility? Well, you know, I think the the biggest thing that was eye opening for me when I went and looked at this from the other side of the fence, so to speak, was uh, I was just totally, uh, completely caught off guard from um, statistically how, you know, how frequent this stuff happens, but not only that, but how fast that it happens. Right. Uh, you know, and the thing that uh, really, you know, was, again, that eye-opening thing to me was that, uh, you know, I, the data that I had in front of me, you know, at that point in time, that almost 70% of the aquatic incidents that, uh, you know, we'd, been a part of happened in pools that had lifeguards but were not noted the incident itself was not noticed by lifeguard so that to me that was huge because you know how many people would actually you know put on the front page of their 
you know, their newsletter for the club. Hey, come out uh, for pool season, get started this week. We've got all these lifeguards. And if there's an incident, there's a 30% chance that somebody's going to notice this, you know. So that was really, really eye-opening to me. And there's a lot of reasons I found out later for why that happens. But I mentioned that just as the back history to it in that supervision is always going to be that first level of, uh, you know, needed, required, uh, you know, uh, struggling here of the work right at the moment. <laughs> That's okay. You I know, mean, I think yeah, I know what you're saying. That's your, your first level of deterrent. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, in that, you, and, you know, one of the things about it is that I think, um, it's something that we struggle with as clubs in general because we sort of create uh, a little bit of a problem in that area because, you know, we exist as uh, as clubs and club managers in particular trying to, t- to handle every detail, you know, mm-hmm. for our members, and rightly so. And we want them to forget about everything. We want them to be able to relax and just forget it all. Come to the club. We got it. Don't worry about it. Okay. But... That can be, you know, given what I've just told you, is supervision is the number one deterrent. You know, that makes it really, really difficult when we have maybe a member who comes in and maybe is not as engaged and watching their kids. And now we've got, uh, you know, kids in a pool, which lifeguards have a very tough job. Now we're putting it on the lifeguards. To not only do their job, but to try to make sure that they're, you know, they're trying to keep every individual, you know, safe in that body of water. And it's just a real, it's a real tough thing. So I always try to make sure that I let everybody know how fast these things happen and that they usually are happening within 10 feet of safety. They're ha- mm-hmm. meaning that they 10 feet of a wall that they could grab onto, 10 feet of someone else in the pool that they could grab onto, or 10 feet of being able to uh, reach a grade in the pool that they could actually walk out of right. on their own. I think it's, I just want to go back to one thing you said earlier about how when this drowning occurred at your club, um, you took it very personally. You know, you took on the responsibility for that happening. Um, and then you just mentioned, you know, when supervision is sort of the number one preventative thing to uh keep drownings from happening, your your lifeguards are the ones sort of tasked with that responsibility. And oftentimes those lifeguards are younger, young teenagers. And I can imagine that that feeling of responsibility rests very heavily on their shoulders as well if they are present at the time of, of something like this, uh, you know, a drowning or, or some other incident where a kid gets hurt or perhaps killed. Um, how have you handled that sort of situation? Well, you know, I think the biggest thing for me is that, you know, I've tried to, um, you know, uh, train and practice as much as we can. I think that's the the real key is that there's no way that you can completely drown-proof anyone at the the club or, you know, uh, completely remove the risk, um, you know, as long as you have that body of water. Absolutely. we can try to mitigate it, and we can try to do it as safely as possible because the pools are there, you know, they're intended to be fun, and and, uh, they should be, and we want them to be that way. Uh, So, you know, 
but we have to make sure that the people we're putting in those and those uh, roles of responsibility that we're setting them up for success. Definitely. And so one of the one of the things I think that we don't do maybe all that that often is okay are we are we practicing these things are we running through the scenarios are we doing the drills uh you know uh, to if we should have one of these incidents that we are setting ourselves up for the best you know chance of success when you go and you and you compare that with say like first responders or firefighters mm-hmm. or any of those kind of things you know one of the one of the uh, key elements about them is they train all the time. Yep. You know, they train all the time. And if you've ever had, uh, you know, an opportunity to witness them coming onto a scene, the one thing that they never do is come running onto yep. the scene. It's calm. They're very, they're very calm. And I've asked them that question, how is it? And they said, well, you know, first off, we're, we're mentally going through in our head that what we're getting ready to experience. So we're trying to apply our training to it. And the second part is, if we go running in there, you know, there's a chance one of us, you know, is going to trip, fall, get hurt, something of that nature. Now we're down, uh, you know, a responder. So we try to do the same things with, especially with our lifeguards and a lot of times with those younger lifeguards is that, you know, let's put them in those positions where we go through it. And the more that we expose them to it, the more likelihood that if we have something of that nature of an incident that they're going to be, you know, able to respond to it in a more positive way. Definitely. That's a great answer. <laughs> um, I think, okay, then to piggyback up on what Melissa had just asked, um, what additional strategies or advice would you suggest to other professionals who may be in a similar position? You know, they have a, a pool or an aquatics area or they're near water. What kind of strategies would you suggest that they have in place to um, ensure they minimize their, their risk being around water? Well, you know... Uh... You know, the first things I usually try to do, you know, outside of supervision, is I try to make sure that they know, well, what's the, where's the key red flags here that you should be aware of, you know? Uh, and I've got three or four of them that I sort of, that mentally, you know, uh, come right off the top of my head here. One is, is outside of supervision is water depth. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this was the other big takeaway for me, um, you know, before, um, this incident happened at, at my club. If somebody would have asked me, and even now when I ask other people this, you know, where where you look at a pool and uh, you say, okay, where do you think would be the the biggest uh, area of concern here? Most of the time, most people automatically go to the deep end of the pool. Uh, so if there's a dive well or something of that nature. But statistically, it's exactly the opposite. The, yep. the majority of aquatic incidents happen in, in three to four feet of water. So it's your shallow end of the pool, yep. which also, if you think about it, is part of what exacerbates that supervision problem. Because totally. mom or dad are thinking, oh, it's okay. Then, you know, kids are in the shallow end of the pool. So maybe that's where, you know, they're more comfortable. And they don't worry about the engagement level. So. Right. That's one, is making sure that they know that, you know, the shallow end is the deep end of the pool to, you know, a, a non-swimmer or a less than skilled swimmer. Right. Um, the other part of this is always um, make sure that, you know, you know your patrons. So the majority of these incidents are going to happen uh, usually in the age ranges for the youth side of things, 
between four and seven years old. Mm -hmm. And if you think about that, that sort of coincides with your new uh, swimmers, people who haven't learned to swim yet, or their skills aren't strong enough yet that they're really independent in the water. Um, and right behind that, you know, is is the uh, the gender of the swimmers. And so this is where I can sort of poke fun at us guys a little bit, you know. <laughs> but I usually will ask people and say, all right, where do you think these incidents are going to happen? When girls or, or, or boys? And four out of five happen with boys. That's so, <laughs> And part of that, you know, when you get into it is in that age range, uh, girls tend to be uh, more risk-averse mm -hmm. and that they're not taking uh, chances, whereas boys tend to be uh, a little bit more risk-takers mm -hmm. in that kind of role, and, so, and especially so if they're in a group. And so, you know, uh, I look at it and say those things first off. Now we're looking at supervision on the pole. We know what, where we need to focus our biggest concerns on the shallow end. You know, how many you know, of our demographic of everybody that's in the pole, which one of them are going are to fit in that, uh, that window of four to seven? And do we have a bunch of boys in, in this area as well? So that was what I, what I would say from the younger perspective. What I, I would add one thing additional to that, though, is that while we're generally talking about drowning from a youth, non-swimmer, uh, less developed swimmer perspective, it happens just as much on the other side with medical conditions for our older uh, members, more tenured members. And so, and they, they add a level of complexity to it because they're good swimmers, right. and they swim all the time. And so we have a tendency to say, okay, well, I don't need to pay attention to them because they're here lap swimming every day. Well, that's not true either because we got to keep an eye on them as well because if we're not, they could have a medical condition in the pool, and we wouldn't even know it right. uh, and, until maybe it's too late. So those are some of the key things I, I say. Take a look at those every year as you get ready to start your operation. Absolutely. Well, obviously, your, your MCM monograph is a great read, um, and certainly listening to this podcast. Are there other resources you recommend um, for clubs that want to get further into this information and training practices? Uh, you know, there's a couple of things if, from a resource perspective. Um, you know, one thing that I always recommend is, um, shoot, I'm going blank on the name now, uh, you know, as I'm um, trying to think of it here. This will be one of those that you can give me a reading. <laughs> I'm going to try. I'm going to try to uh, find this thing really quick here. That's, That's fine. Okay. Take your time. You're good. You're Certainly. good. <laughs> I get uh, puddle jumpers. Puddle, puddle, puddle jumpers. Jump. Okay. Okay. All right. So puddle jumpers, uh, for those who aren't familiar with them, they're uh, you know for uh, usually up to I think around. 40 some pounds but they are a class three, considered a class three life jacket uh you they're common now you can see them in a lot of places you can buy them at walmart you can get them online etc but uh different than a you know water wings or anything like that the thing about the puddle jumper is is that the the youth has to actually put their arms through each of the armholes and then it also has a centerpiece and it straps on the back 
and they come in all kinds of different colors and with funky designs on them and stuff and the things so the kids like them and they have no stigma with wearing them right. uh, but because it is not just you know a uh, something to assist them in the water it's actually a life jacket it will keep them buoyant in in the water um, and the there's not so much of a you know a stigma with them with the parents you know uh, having those and so I always try to make sure that that if we've got the younger kids that we've got those available so at my last club this club where I'm at now you know we have a rack of those we have probably 50 of those and so while we encourage members to bring them we have them all the time we make sure that there's never a time that somebody comes into the pool that if they didn't have one and they want one uh, we've got it so we make sure that we have that for them. The other thing from a resource perspective is um, trying to do, you know, whether you've got a mannequin or a silhouette or something of that nature that you can use in the training, uh, you know, of the staff so that you're not just um, that walking through scenarios, but you walk through them to completion. Okay, let's actually have to... Uh, not only identify someone in the pool that maybe is, uh, you know, had an incident here, but let's let's get them out. Let's involve everybody. Let's get the staff involved in. Uh, you know, who calls nine one one? Who goes gets the AD? Who's you know um, going to the street to uh, you know signal the EMS into where the most proximate location is on the property? And and I think the more that you can do those things, the better that that, you know, again, you're setting yourself up for success. Well, we really appreciate um, all that you've had to share. I think it's, you know, as we move into this, this season for a lot of people of being outside, being in the water, it's something to, good to think about, not only for your club, but personally for your own family, um, you know, certainly as we vacation and, and move through the summer. So thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It was wonderful. All right. Well, that wraps us up. Perfect. So we are so excited today to have Alan Akas, uh, CCNCHE, with us today. Um, Alan is a former general, or former club manager who now operates his business assisting clubs and other operations with health and safety issues. He started working in the club industry as a dishwasher and worked in every department on his way up to the managerial ladder. In 1997, Alan became an OSHA general industry outreach trainer. In this capacity, he offers education sessions for managers, executive staff, and all line employees. And it's been my pleasure to work with Alan um, for longer than we probably want to admit um, <laughs> on OSHA-related matters. And we worked on an alliance with OSHA in my time here and really just helping to better educate managers on the information they need to know to keep their employees safe. So thank you so much for being with us, Alan. We really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure, Melissa. As you know, we've had a lot of fun over the years, and as you mentioned, the OSHA Alliance, uh, geez, that was 2003 to 2009 that we were uh, uh, we were the sole people against, or I wouldn't say against, but working with OSHA, and everything was falling back on our shoulders uh, to create awareness, and that was, uh, that was a learning curve for both of us. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, definitely a, uh, a joyful project, however. Um, so, Alan, we did a lot. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> we did. We did. Um, and I, you know what? What I love about that is so much of that material is still really relevant 
Um, and, and certainly, you know, the, the resources that you've written through us through what was Premier Club Services and now the Club Resource Center over time, I mean, so much of that is still relevant um, and really mm-hmm. a good starting point for a lot of our members. So, you know, Alan, it's, uh, it's April as we, uh, we talk now, which is uh, a time frame where a club needs to have something posted in their club. What is it that clubs <laughs> should be posting in their club in February through April? Well, we have the OSHA 300A log, which is the uh, condensed version of the OSHA 300 log, uh, but the OSHA 300A log is to be posted on all, and I'll say all staff bulletin boards. Uh, we would have the one in the clubhouse, but we can't forget the ground department. And this, uh, this summary is to be posted February 1 to April 30th, that's annually listing all the injuries that happened in the prior year. Um, it's funny, this was one of our OSHA alliance items from 2003 to 2009, and it's still amazing that uh, they are either not posted, clubs are not maintaining the OSHA logs, um, and in addition, there's times that uh, the general managers don't know that they have to sign them. Uh, more often than not, I'll see the controller or the office manager sign them, and I'll say, oh, so you're the highest compensated employee in the operation. <laughs> so we always wake a few people up on that one. Absolutely. Uh, I was going to say, I know it's a, it's a big uh, learning, learning curve when I meet managers. And I mention it this time of year, and they just look at me. They've never heard of it before. So it's, it's a good reminder for this time of year. And we certainly also, you know, have a lot of changes in the, the record keeping and um, disclosure rules the last couple of years with the change in electronic reporting. Um, we just passed the March 2nd deadline um, for uploading all of your information from calendar year 2018. Are you finding a lot of clubs are, uh, are participating in that process? Or I know it's been kind of confusing as there's been changes and rollbacks of, of portions of the record keeping, but... Well, there's, there's another part of it. There's a... Um, uh, Clubs with over 250 employees have had to, well, I'll rephrase it, supposedly have to uh, provide their record-keeping information, their OSHA 300A logs to OSHA. And a lot of clubs just didn't realize this. And right now, it's, um, uh, OSHA will be looking and potentially finding clubs with large volumes employees, okay, you know, with these 250-plus employees. Um, so if they haven't submitted, you know, I tell people, just start doing your logs and try and submit, but it's, um, there's going to be a red flag and OSHA will be coming after them. And uh, at least that's what they're telling me in the next uh, upcoming fiscal year or calendar, OSHA calendar year. Never a good thing. So, um, Alan, what trends are you seeing, um, certainly the changes in record-keeping that clubs need to be aware of, and uh, as well as those evergreen uh, evergreen rules, but what trends in safety across the industry are you seeing? What Are, are we seeing higher incidences in one area? Um, well, Melissa, every year you post the, um, uh, the OSHA summary of illnesses, injuries that happen across the, uh, the club environment. Uh, country clubs and golf courses are combined together under the uh, what they call the NACIS code, which is the North American Industrial Classification System. Uh, the number is 713910, and it might be something that you can reference and share again. 
Um, but clubs are still being cited, you know, on everything we did back uh, when we were doing the OSHA Alliance. Um, hazard communication. There are so many clubs that are not doing the annual training to let the employees know how to read um, a safety data sheet. And that is the number one cited uh, uh, across the board for country clubs, golf courses, marinas, as well as city clubs. Um, after that, um, respiratory protection. Again, it was another one of our alliance uh, uh, initiatives. Clubs are being cited for that. Uh, another one, emergency action plans. Clubs are not doing their emergency action plans. Uh, you know, how do you tell them to do it? Well, it's the hardest time. Uh, it's the hardest to make the time to do it. But then when you consider, geez, in third grade, we have emergency drills. You know, why can't clubs make the time to do an emergency drill? Um, so those are the, the big items. Uh, I've also been uh, doing some work on uh, active shooter and workplace violence. And clubs want to go automatically, well, let's do this active shooter and let's, let's have a plan for the club. And I have to say, wait a second, let's go, tell me about your emergency action plan first. If your staff doesn't know where to go for a roll call on a regular fire drill, you know, what are you going to tell them to do besides the run, hide, fight for um, uh, an active shooter drill? So there's a, there's a few items that, uh, that tie into that. Recently, we interviewed C.W. Cook about his MCM monograph on aquatic safety, and he talked with us uh, about the importance of doing simulation training with your employees. One of the issues that we talked about, um, both in the development of your resource and certainly um, with the OSHA Alliance, was the concept of how you assess near misses. Can you talk to us about that process and how clubs can utilize it to really make their employees safer? Um. First off, it starts with awareness, okay? What can go wrong? Um, you know, there's, there's so many different levels with actual training that you have to do. And one analogy I share on many an occasion is I used to be a regular, in my last neighborhood, I used to walk on a regular basis. Well, there was one piece of concrete that was up an inch or so, and I can't tell you the number of times I tripped on that piece of concrete. Now, it's the same thing in your club environment. If you're tripping on something, you know, after a couple months, you know to step up and over it. But what about everyone else around you? So you have to start with the training. You know, did I ever, and I'm laughing at myself, did I spray paint this uh, curb orange, you know, to let everyone else know about the answer? <laughs> no, I didn't. But, you know, if it's in the club environment, you just have to take a look at it. It's what about the... Um, the ductwork in an area where you have a, a, head, a head bump hazard. You know, how many times does someone have to hit their head before they put a piece of um, uh, pipe insulation just to cover it to serve as a head bump guard? Um, and so what CW is uh, saying, and uh, you take a look at what has happened. Uh, and if you all of a sudden realize it's a, a training issue, we'll start your training. You know, I'll ask someone, I, I heard a story just the other day about someone that was doing chainsaw education uh, for a new employee, or a new employee, and obviously running a chainsaw, all of us can go out and buy one, but what training is being done for the staff? And so this person that was talking is, hey, this is how you use it properly, this is your techniques, and there was another employee that was right next to him, and he said, oh, and by the way, 
you don't operate the chainsaw safely. You have your face right over the blade. And said, you better change your, uh, your way of doing things. And so I hear this whole story because the employee that was, uh, uh, I don't call it reprimanded, but was advised of what he was doing wrong, had a chainsaw uh, injury, you know, not even a week after this training. So scary stuff. You have to take a look at what can potentially go wrong and then address that in training. Alan, I know that um, OSHA can oftentimes and certainly compliance can seem overwhelming for a lot of our members. I know you have the great perspective of having been in the industry for a, a long time and, and managed a club and, and really seen all facets of it. What would you tell a CMA member to do today, take a first step to really get into compliance with OSHA? Um, first step, we'll go right back to record keeping. Take a look at... Uh uh, your OSHA 300 logs, your 300A logs. If you haven't done your 300A logs or 300 logs, you can start tomorrow. Get your workers' comp information and then just fill out the logs. Uh, first aid is not part of it, and um, I would say, you know, guide them to the OSHA lines articles that we did on the, the website. Uh, the second item I would say, start a hazard communication program. Um, and then just start building on it, okay? Take a look at all your chemicals, um, get a written program, make sure your books are current and up to date, um, and then start with an emergency action plan. Open the dialogue. Uh, the last part, you know, to put this together, is form a safety committee. And who do you want on the safety committee? I'll always say have the most positive people in the club uh, is in those that like to... Um, have a smile on their face and laugh all the time because they'll think differently about safety. And ensure you're communicating back and forth with the various departments. Yeah, it definitely seems, I, I, love, I love that, you know, finding the champion, making, that individual, making those individuals and using their enthusiasm to build it across the club. Um, you know, it, it often sounds the, the dire of, you know, we don't want to get in trouble with OSHA, so therefore, you know, it, it seems it's such a negative thing versus, you know, proactively making sure it's a safe environment for our employees and ultimately, you know, making a better experience for everyone. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Alan. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much as well, Melissa, and please keep sharing all the good stuff with uh, the club industry. Okay, so it's time for the news and announcement portion of our show, and we hope that we have a lot of CMA members listening, but we also probably have some non-CMA members listening, and we wanted to make you aware of the fact that it is a great time to join CMA. Yes, Kyle, will you tell us a little bit about why it's a good time to join CMA? Well, aside from the fact that it's always a good time to join CMAA, uh, you never want to miss out on any of the opportunities that we have available. Um, right now is a particularly good time to join the association because we are in our um, mid-year portion of the year when it comes to our dues payments. So if you join the association between April 1st, which is today, the time we are recording, and August 31st of this year, uh, you'll be paying half of our prevailing national dues rate. And for professional members, that would be um, $250, which is a bargain for the amount of um, educational opportunities that you'll receive being part of this organization, as well as the networking 
and, uh, you know, just, I don't know, there's just so much to be had <laughs> with uh, membership with CMAA, but definitely joining now um, will get you all of that for half the cost, which is great. Um, the same is true for student members. Student members, if you join now, between now and the end of August, you will pay half of the student dues rate, which normally is $50. So that would be $25. Um, because you would be joining at this time of the year, you will be receiving a renewal um, from us at the end of the summer to renew your membership for the next membership year. As a reminder, our membership year runs from November 1st through October 31st. So that's why April marks the mid-year time frame. Because <laughs> lots of people ask, well, April's the fourth month. How is that mid-year? It's mid-year on our membership calendar. So just be thinking about that. If you are interested in joining the association or if you know someone who is, please share that with them. And we look forward to hearing from them. Sure. And there's a great spot on the website if you're looking for more information about how to join the association, because we obviously have a uh, chapter requirement as well. And so to locate information for your local chapter, if you visit cma.org backslash join CMA, we'll get you all set with all the information you need. Absolutely. The other thing to remind uh, everybody about is the um, data collection period for the finance and operations reports. We mentioned this in the beginning of the podcast, but we wanted to make sure we hit this one home because it's very important. It is super important. And this is the way to get the great data you need to make those finance and operations decisions during the year. So by participating in the process, um, all of our uh, participants receive a copy of the full report, and it really helps you benchmark your information against what's going on in the industry. So it's a great resource. Um, if you visit cma.org, you can or directly to cma-research.org, <laughs> you can um, cl um, click directly into it. And it is a big survey, but they've made it, uh, they've put together multiple ways to make it easier to fill that out. Mm -hmm. So check out those options um, and get started. The due date is the 19th of April, so it is coming up. Coming up quick. So you have about three weeks to get that information in and to you know get your ducks in a row. So if you have any questions about the surveys, um, as always, you can reach out to us at HQ, but most specifically, you can talk to Sarah Bell or Milkar Davy in our research department, and they would be happy to answer any questions or concerns that you might have. Awesome. Um, as far as any other announcements, Melissa, do we have anything else going on? I think that's it. Awesome. Okay, well, that, um, that about wraps us up for this month. <laughs> it's hard to believe that April is here, and before we know it, it will be summer, and things will be getting busier and busier, but we are super excited that we've almost been doing this podcast for a year, and next month we'll mark that one-year uh, milestone for us. So thanks for sticking with us through our learning and growing pains. <laughs> And we look forward to our next episode. Absolutely. And we always love to hear your feedback and ideas for future episodes. Feel, feel free to reach out if you have a suggestion for a topic or a guest. Um, so until next month, we'll talk to you then. I'm Kyle. That's Melissa. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.